All right, greetings, everybody, and welcome to another installment of Innovation Crush. It's me, Chris Denson, your gracious host, coming at you once again. Um, and uh, today, we have some really awesome guests in the house. Uh, you guys go ahead and introduce yourselves, and then I will, I'll, I'll interject you, you know, with some, uh -uh. With some wisdom and, and questionnaires. Well, um, I'm Randy Barbado, and I am a co-founder of World of Wonder and producer, co-producer, co-director of Maplethorpe. Did you just try to take credit for all of you guys. I was gonna. Uh, <laughs> Fenton's here. If he wasn't yeah, here. I'm, I'm the other half, the co-founder. Co I'm Fenton Bailey and do the same thing Randy does, really. We're partners at, at World of Wonder. And how long has uh, World of Wonder been a thing? Um, World of Wonder has been around for about 123 years. Wow. Um, we've That's had amazing. really good work, right? Yeah. Um, no, we've been around for um, uh, 20 a little Five, 25 years, 25 years since yeah. the last century. Yes. Since, yeah. uh, Fenton and I um, started working together actually at, at film school at NYU. And then we started a company not long after that. And by the way, I have to uh, admittedly, I, I spent a lot of this morning listening to the fabulous pop tarts Good for you. <laughs> um, I almost danced in my socks in my, it was weird, but it was just tell, tell the people a little bit about the fabulous pop tarts. Cause I had a blast. <laughs> oh, well, what was your favorite song? Um, it, it what the, what, no, one of them, one, one of them was your first video on MTV uh -huh. and uh -huh. that was the one I jammed out to a little See, bit. The pop tarts were around before the internet, but cruelty has somehow Somehow, you know, somehow, <laughs> somehow this stuff has ended up on the interwebs. Yes. yes. It's, it's just we, not fair. We but can't escape the Pop-Tarts. It was part of Don't our- Don't escape it. It is part of your lineage. Yes. It was part of our ill-conceived strategy that we would break into Hollywood making independent films by becoming pop stars and using the proceeds from our huge hits to fund our films. Because it was hard to raise money to make movies back in the day. Right. Before independent film really took off. And the only flaw in the strategy was that we needed some hits and we didn't have any, <laughs> we didn't have any hits and we, we couldn't get a record. We did get record contracts. We did get publishing contracts, but we, Seymour Stein, who famously signed Madonna, and tell me when this is too much information, but Seymour it's Stein- It's never too much information, by the who way. famously signed Madonna on his deathbed, um, was called up by our manager and he said, haven't you heard of the Pet Shop Boys? And hung up the phone because we were- considered to be not dissimilar to Pet Shop Boys. Although I would say we were significantly camper than the Pet Shop Boys. I felt if a little culture possible. club. That's kind of like where, yeah. where I immediately went to. Yeah. But we were really, we were really pretty, um, I wouldn't say bad, but mediocre. And um, however, the great thing about the Pop-Tarts was we did get a bunch of deals and we saved all that money. And that's how we started World of Wonder. And the other weird thing about the Pop-Tarts is almost 20 years later, after the the Pop Tarts never had a hit or something like that, RuPaul called us up and he said, "Oh my God, I just heard a Pop Tart song <laughs> on the don't don't mess with Zohan mm. film soundtrack." Yeah. And we're like, "No, no, no, no!" And he's like, "No, you need to check it out. New York City Beats on there." And sure enough, we checked it out, and it was there. And um. Th th someone, um, had, Armin Van Helden, not someone, Armin Van Helden had taken a pop tart song and remixed it, but he kept the entire, kept our vocals, kept the whole song. So yeah. without, um, without our permission. So 
we lawsuit. Um, hello, hello. So, so we <laughs> both got new cars because because it yeah, ended up being we, like kind of um, it was like a, like a little hit in Europe and it like, was a big hit in Europe. It was, it was in this big, wait in this, the the updated version was a hit then yeah yeah, yeah um, that's okay. Armand van Helden's version. Um, was a big hit in Europe, and it was in this movie, this massive movie. You know, only Star Wars is bigger than the Zohan yes. movie, as you know. So, so. cha-ching. Yeah, no, that, I mean, it's, it, that's a great story of pivoting. I mean, we talked to a lot of entrepreneurs. <laughs> no, seriously, like, right, you had a, you had a game plan. You, we had uh, Damien Kulash on from OK Go, and uh-huh. their early days, I mean, they make amazing music videos, but they started in creativity because, it, you know, one of them went to RISD or something like that and figured, like, we can make flyers. If we can make amazing flyers, the venues will book us. And, you know, that was uh, 1998 or something like that, so... Similar journey. You guys are, are you're on your way to success. <laughs> yeah, and totally, and, and everything, and we are on our way. I mean, it all takes I a little bit. That. Yes, it takes a little bit of time. But no, everything we've ever done has been very DIY, and and you know, our whole career started with many massive failures. And to this day, in our swank offices on Hollywood Boulevard, um, in our conference room, we have this big painting. Um, it's a, a paint by number painting and it has the word yes, because our whole philosophy is no is the beginning of yes. Cause we've never really sold anything. We've never sold anything in the room. We've never really, yes. well, we did, we've always, we did once. And then the next day the executive called up and said, uh, I've changed my mind. Yes. So, so, and just to put that in perspective, cause I have, I have some numbers. Oh. We have a gigantic research team here. Uh-huh, I see them all. Um, yeah, you're literally looking at them. Um, <laughs> 220 original series, 41 networks, 1,600 episodes of television. Am, am I in the right yeah, ballpark? That's right. Yeah. Um, and, you know, an amazing documentary on HBO currently, which I think was a return home for you guys in a sense, right? Like, wasn't the first documentary that you guys no, did? It's about it was the 20th. <laughs> well, I mean, as far <laughs> as was, like... It, it, yes, that's where we started our... Yes. our filmmaking careers Mm -hmm. at HBO. So it's interesting though, like with a track record like that, you don't sell in the room. Is that just because it's not a common practice that, you know, the the studios or networks will go like, yes, we want it. Let's do it now. Right. You hear all these stories about selling it in the room. (laughs) To me, it's like the unicorn. Napkin deals. Like I'm still waiting for a napkin deal. Uh (laughs) It's like the unicorn often, you know, quoted and talked about, but rarely seen (laughs) in our case anyway. I mean, yeah. Yeah. People always want, People always have a good time with us in the room. People always want us to come back. They still call us the boys. They think that we're like club kids. Still, we're bald, but they still think we're club kids. But they we're never all bald, really. By the way. Yeah. Well, they, they, I thought yours is a choice, though. It, it's it's slightly by choice. It's by design, and like I'm in I'm in, I'm in the smart. in between phase. You're ahead of the curve, literally. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but yeah, we 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 don't sell in the room. So I mean, but with with this experience, right, and and with the number of projects you've been able to accomplish, um, which we can probably get into in a, in a second, what have you discovered about the art of the pitch? Whether it is that expectation to go back, like what what is what are the successful I, I, check marks? Of, I think of it's, it's pitching? the the Linda Obst quote that always sticks with me, which is "Ride the horse in the direction it's going." So you kind of want to pick up on what's happening in the room and go with that. Uh, one series we sold uh, was about Andy Warhol. We did this big six-part series for British television called Andy Warhol, The Complete Picture. And it wasn't on our list of things to pitch when we went into the room, 
But the art of reading upside down, of reading what's on someone's desk in a meeting, that's a useful, that's a useful <laughs> ability. And we happened to see that she'd written the words Andy Warhol on a piece of paper on her desk. So everything was not going well. None of the, none of the ideas were finding a home. But suddenly we just said, oh, you know, we've always wanted to make a series about Andy Warhol. And she lit up like a Christmas tree. And so... So go with the. Did you actually have a? Did you actually have a Andy Warhol picture or, or pitch in your back pocket? Or? Uh, no, not at that precise <laughs> moment. <laughs> right. But we knew enough. I mean, we knew enough about Andy Warhol to talk it through and say this would be the time to tell his story. And you know, Fenton has a huge back pocket. <laughs> Seriously, nice. I'll um, show it to you later. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, the other thing I think, yes, reading upside down really helps. I, I do genuinely think though, like having a good time, like, like we pitch and we do have ideas and we, and, and we have great people who work with us who are much better at pitching than Fenton and I are. But, um, but we always have a good time in the pitch meeting. So people love to hear our pitches and, and then people know that we do good work. So if the pitch doesn't sell, that's okay because they're always going to want us to come back. And sometimes there's an idea. Maplethorpe is a great example where, where Sheila Nevins at HBO in a meeting was like, you know, what about Maplethorpe? She, she said to us, so she sort of put that out in the air and she knows that we know how to make great stuff. And she knew that, that the combination of us and Maplethorpe could make something pretty fabulous. And so I think it, it, it's less about sometimes just, you know, being, um, having a good time with people, connecting with people, and then also being open to, other people's ideas or other people's right. suggestions. It, Cause if, if you have a relationship over like with Sheila is like a hundred years that we've worked with her. She's she, only 20. Yes. Uh, that's true. <laughs> um, you know, she's she been knows, around for a long time, hundred years, 123 yeah. <laughs> years. This is it's like vampire stat. <laughs> uh, what we do in the shadows is another great. Movie. Oh, it's fantastic. <laughs> crazy. Take us, take us film. Um, so the, when you say having a good time outside of showing people your back pockets, Mm-hmm. Um, what, like, what does that consist of? Cause I, you know, I, I think I understand in terms of like building rapport, like, you know, what, what are some of those mechanics? Like, going well, uh, like in a very specific way, we went out with Fantasia to pitch a show and we ordered, um, what we, don't you remember? We, we had the, we, we brought in barbecue chicken. We like, we turn it into a party. Like we turn our pitches into party. We, like uh, that was an example of selling a show, but Fantasia show, sell, sold that show. We right. didn't, you know. I was thinking of the uh, gold digger show that we took oh. out with Gene Simmons from Kiss, um, <laughs> who's a fantastic character. I mean, and uh, our brilliant idea there was that we'd hire a stretch limousine and we put the cast in the stretch and then got the executive, put them in the stretch and drove off with them. Nice. And Around they, the block. We never sold the show. So it doesn't always work. Right. Right. We had the wrong cast. They had a good but, time. But I mean, to your point though, it, like it becomes a memorable moment for those individuals. They will call you in to do something and, you know, hopefully in most cases, but it is part of that developing a, a memorable moment at, you know, at, right. at that point. But it's also probably, as I can tell from this conversation, very natural to how you guys are in your day to day. I think yeah. it just has to be organic, kind of. really. Yeah. The pitch. 
Um, so, you, oh, go ahead. No, no, you, you don't. Saying, you you disagree? Just, no, no, no. Totally. I was just going to say, most of the time, we're pitching things that that to most people seem so out there. You know, we've all, like we we tend to be kind of out there, but but as we get older and as the world gets older, no, like the kind of fringe, two hundred years old. Yes, yeah. no, but the, like the, the main the, out there is now in here. Yes, like fringe has become mainstream. Right. You know? it, it's so so we're just waiting. <laughs> but also pity the executive, you know, who has to take meetings day after day, oh all gosh. day meetings. Sometimes it, the last thing they want to hear is another is another pitch. So sometimes it's just like, let's just chat a little. Yeah. Right. You know? uh-huh. Just catch up. I once pitched Malcolm X in the middle as a joke to an executive. And for a minute, he it was a, it was like a pitch day at a thing. And he you should have saw this guy's face. He was so like, he was like, oh, my gosh. like really. And then I, I snapped out of it. And he was like, oh, thank God. And then we got into the real pitch, which I also didn't sell. But, uh-huh. you know. But I would have bought Malcolm X in the middle. It's not too late. It's still, it's still available. It was, it was only 15 years ago, I think, that that happened. Um, so just so we can put this in perspective, uh, give us an idea of the body of work you guys have created over the past 723 <laughs> years. Well, you know, we started before television was invented. So first we had to invent We're in television. <laughs> no, Superman. I mean, mainly, I guess the, the, what, the work we do falls into kind of two categories. On the one hand, TV series, and then on the other hand, feature docs uh, and features. And we've done scripted too. We, we did the, the movie Party Monster with Macaulay Culkin and Seth Green and Marilyn Manson. And that was based on the documentary that we also directed and produced called Party Monster because we had a hard time thinking of different titles. Um, and that's actually something we'd like to do more of where you – you know, you do a documentary and that ends up being a sort of research process right. and then you can do a scripted and, um, but that's, I suppose it divides into, and we, we're very screen agnostic, you know, we don't think it really matters whether it's a big screen or a small screen, you know, it's not the size of the screen that matters. It's the dimensions of the story. <laughs> ah, that's, that's quotable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah. But you, but that was, you had that one in the back pocket. I take it. It's mm-hmm. in my enormous okay. back pocket. <laughs> <laughs> Anything that. Uh, no, I think I think that was good. So there's the RuPaul series. What else has been on the on Drag the roster? Race, um, Million Dollar Listings, uh, which is on Bravo. Million Dollar Listings, LA. Million Dollar Listings, New York. Big Big, Big, Big Frida, Frida, which is on Fuse. Um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, ass yeah. everywhere, yes, ass everywhere. Yes. yep, ass everywhere. Ass everywhere. <laughs> the queen of I don't, know, I don't know the lyrics, but I knew the rhythm, the cadence. So yeah, uh-huh. that's, that's the best I could do. Um, yeah. So you know, with that, is there is there a sweet spot for you guys? I mean, it, it sounds like from million dollar listings to RuPaul. Well, for some reason, people think we're gay, so we end up doing a lot of gay stuff. I don't know how that happens, but uh, no, I mean, it, it's weird. I guess when when you do one thing, there is a a you can get trapped in the sense that people think you can only do the thing that you've done. And we like to keep changing it um, because uh, whether it's a game show or an elimination competition show or a feature documentary or a scripted movie, it really, what we really love is storytelling and well, how, how do you escape stigma in that in that essence, right? Because like, a lot of people do get pigeonholed, or whether you're you know typecast as a you know as an actor, or you know even in my career, it's like oh that's the such and such guy, and I was like no 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 I, I can do more than that. Like how did you how did you break out of not being pigeonholed as the you know? I don't know if that we have, um, but 
we just keep doing what we're doing. So we just don't go away, you know? Yeah. And we just keep doing different stuff and more of it. And we, I mean, we are actually, we actually like what we, what we do and we like to work. And so we do a lot of it. And, and by the way, we also work with a lot of kind of like-minded people. I think, you know, we, some people have typecast us as gay, but I think we're more queer in the non-gay way, like queer in the all, like the, like everyone who feels like an outsider, mm -hmm. you know, like fringe culture. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's, and that's a lot of the stuff, a lot of the stuff we produce, a lot of the people where we've made films about, or a lot of the ideas kind of come from that. A lot of the people who work at world of wonder kind of relate to that. Sure. They're all sort of, it's our tribe. And, um, that kind of, that motivates what we do and makes it, I don't know, well, um, it, rewarding. It, and it's cool. I mean, if you, if, you know, I, I think when you talk about screen agnostic and I think what technology has allowed us to do is reach fringe audiences a little bit more deeply than it used to. I mean, back when the, the pop tarts videos were out, it was like, you, you know, or you couldn't find that, that scene as easily as you could now. So, you know, with that, um, and you, you're producing for the fringe culture and you mentioned the, the culture you have internally at, at world of wonder. Can you just talk about like what kind of culture you've established inside the company as much as you guys are the, the beautiful faces and the front runners of it. Like there is a machine in place of sorts there. Yeah. There's a, well, we we're we're different in, to other production companies. I think in that there are actual artists and producers and showrunners and who are on staff at world of wonder. So they, I, I, um, it's, it's, of there are all these great filmmakers who are working there and some of them will, you know, get to do a one-off or, you know, I, I think of someone like Stephen Korff, who's the exec, one of the executive producers of RuPaul's Drag Race. He started out as our assistant and he, wow. he, he, he's English. He first became aware of world of wonder from some of our British early British work. And he now runs like he runs the show and, um, he, what's what he's just, he was smart and fully realized when he started working at world of wonder and he grew into doing something where we, where we just have to look at a cut and it makes us laugh, you know? Awesome. And how long has he been a part of like, I mean, what's that journey from assistant to executive producers? It's like a week. <laughs> I was going to say, like, like I started <laughs> on Monday, Friday I was running the place. <laughs> we all work for him. It's funny though, because sometimes when we do pitches on, on conference calls, people think, that everyone at World of Wonder is like running around that's, in I, drag, that, you know. That's the that, well, I'm drag, I have this big circus thing, like doing in my drugs. Head, like it's fun. Yeah, big top, you know. <laughs> so we will tease people and say, "Well, everybody's naked today. Today's right. naked day at World of Wonder." But the truth is, it's a very, it's an office, and there are desks and phones and chairs, and it's, it's sort of, it's almost very standard, uh, I suppose, so that people can be really creative. You almost need that framework of, of just regularity. It's not like Andy Warhol's factory in the sixties. Let's put it that way. Although what's a cool thing that's kind of happening at world of wonder now, because of the rise of, of digital culture, you know, we have, we have a, a digital channel. Wow presents and, and we have a studio in the basement and people are producing stuff and people who work there have shows. And so it's kind of like, 
you know, the ultimate dream would be to have our own network and let all our friends have their own TV shows because our friends are so entertaining, you know, Lady Bunny and, and, uh, Blake at World of Wonder. But, um, and that's, you know, it feels like that's almost starting to happen with, with the digital network. And it's weird to see like the audiences that some of these people are building you know? Yeah, no, it's, it's, I, I spent some time at a company called Machinima. Again, you think about fringe oh, culture mm-hmm, and it yeah, was totally. gamers and like a, a voiceless community, like pre Machinima, right? It was like, oh, you, you're at home in your parents' bed. Like that was always like the, the stigma or the, mm-hmm. the perception of what that individual is. So I think part of, you know, what you've also been able to do is shed a different light on fringe culture and, and tell a different story. And I think that's kind of like the underlying, if I'm being too forward or whatever, just let me know. But how that's like, <laughs> no, but the, you're right. I think that it's it is very punk in the sense that traditional media used to be about you would have to earn your way and earn your place, whether it's the New York Times or being on a network. And now anybody can do anything. And I feel that it is such a sort of democratized environment. Right. And, and as a result, it's so exciting because all the kinds of voices and ideas that you couldn't hear before. And now people are clamoring for because like this sounds different. This is new. This is exciting. So it, it, I think it really is a, an incredibly exciting time. And, and it's funny because Randy and I were originally really inspired by Manhattan Public Access, which were these crazy shows that people would <laughs> yeah, make. That's on true. Their that's own. actually very I true. Mean, yes. You know, it was this sort of like on a on a wing and a prayer. They'd make a TV show and put it on, and that was like that was like you can really do this. And then. We collected them together and, and edited clips, and that was our very first show for British TV called Manhattan Cable. And people in England had never seen anything like Filthy the Dog or Mrs. Mouth or Lynn from Voyeurvision or Robin Bird. And it was just this crazy cavalcade of creativity that was completely unbound by the traditional rules of media, you right. know. That there's this idea of a canon of media that is approved and certified and you have to work really hard and prove yourself to get into. This sort of blew all that apart. And yeah. So that was all are. before YouTube. It was like, that's what, you yeah. know, public access was what YouTube Viral videos. became. Viral yeah. videos. And, um, and now we're living in that world. Yeah. Um, you talked about this painting earlier, the, the yes painting. Um, define yes in, in the world of wonder terms. Well, um, the painting is by Trey Spiegel and it's great. It's a great painting because it's a join the dots. Uh, no, not join the dots. Paint by numbers. Paint by numbers. And the yes is sort of ghosts out of the French Arc de Triomphe. So what does yes mean? I suppose yes just doesn't mean no. <laughs> yes. To, yes. It's literally no. just means yes, Chris. Yes to me. <laughs> yes. To, yes to me is a check. Uh that's yes a good, to me is get, yes. it's getting yeah. paid. Yeah. You know, yes to me is like, yes to me is an audience. Yes to me, you know, it's a chat. It's money. It's a, outside of the money. Is it? So it, no, it sounds like, I mean, with the other things you listed though, it is that, um, <laughs> the, the vote of appreciation, right? Like, yes, we like this or let's go to the next level or the, um, you have the wrong phrase in mind, but it is the, just an indicator that you're on the right path in mm-hmm. a sense. Yeah. Yes. 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 Yeah. I see what you did there. So um, let's let's fast forward to what last month. Um, I, 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 the note I wrote was shock and awesome. Um, uh, when we, when I lo- looked at the oh, Maple Thorpe, like thank you, oh, thank good, you. This, can, this is what we do here. That's going in my back pocket. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, I'll need a check. <laughs> um, no. So let's. I mean, 
where did the desire to tell the Maplethorpe story start? Uh, you know, you mentioned Sheila Nevins, but you know, when it, I'm sure a lot of things get said in the room, you're like, hey, okay, cool. And that, but this came to fruition in a really major way. Well, I think, you know, I do think um, Robert Maplethorpe is out there somewhere guiding this. It's all very spooky because Sheila mentioned it and we started looking into it and really no one had really told his story since the trial, which happened after he died, right. and since the NEA scandal. There have been one or two things, but not, not really a, a sort of exhaustive, massive look. And it was odd only because Maplethorpe's presence as an artist is, is, is bigger than ever. I mean, even before these exhibitions, it's like he never went away. And so the film itself came together really unusually quickly. Um, we went to the Robert Maplethorpe Foundation and told them what we were thinking. And they were like, yes, they were, they said, yes, there wasn't, they didn't say no. We went to LACMA and Getty who we'd learned were putting on these exhibitions and we're like, oh my gosh, we got to get the film finished in time for those exhibitions. And they said, yes. And I mean, you know, and, and so many of his friends and people in his life, he had wanted them to write about him or tell his story. You know, like when he was dying, he told Patty Smith to made her promise to write their story. And she right. did in Just Kids. So his friends wanted to talk about him. So it was like, yes, yes, yes. I, I think yeah. also like as we started digging in more and as we realized how like we knew, we knew of him like we knew of a brand. It was like, Maplethorpe, McDonald's, like Fenton and I were living in New York in the East Village. Like we knew of him, like we ran parallel, we were much younger, but we ran like in parallel, like on parallel tracks in, in New York city in the eighties, um, before he died. And, but we realized we knew, we heard about him all the time, but knew so little about him. And so as we dug in and as we started looking at the pictures and learning who he was, it really, I don't know. I think we found, we personally connected with the story. We, 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 it was a real ride making this film because we also had very ambivalent feelings about him. You know, we, you know, he's pretty ambitious. He, um, he, uh, you know, his art is, really, you know, it's beautiful, but some of it's really intense. (laughs) And, um, and so I think it, you know, there are a lot of reasons why you could, you could say, Hmm, I'm not sure if he's like someone I would really want to hang out with. And we've never made a film about anyone. Like we made a film about Tammy Faye, Monica Lewinsky, lots of people, Chaz Bono, We've never had any mixed feelings at the beginning of that process. We kind of knew we were making this film because we, we had an affinity for something about them that, but with Maplethorpe, it wasn't that clear. And so we really went on a journey and and in the end, we really came to admire him. I was going to say, do you, I mean, do you think that sort of middle of the road kind of opinion or positioning maybe made you be a little bit more um, uh, 
agnostic, uh, you know, about it. Because I think if, if it's somebody I admire, right, the, I think the tendency might be like, oh, this is going to be awesome. And like you go into it this wholeheartedly. But then you you already like a good documentary, I feel like tells two sides, right? Like you, you almost feel like ah, I want to kind of solve it on my own or to kind of mm-hmm. figure it out on my own. Um, or what can I do? Uh, you know, um, and you went into it with like forced to kind of look at both sides, like forcing, yes. convincing one side to lean toward the other and vice versa. Yeah, I I do think in especially for a film about him, like it it all of that contributed to making it kind of special, like making the film better. And and definitely there are a lot of people who see this film who come out like it, you know, um confused about their feelings towards him. <laughs> but but you know, but it was intense. It was just it was an intense story. It was the the imagery was intense and and part of me felt like and you you guys probably know better than I do, but it felt like a lot of his work was deliberate in that sense. If you think about the time of, you know, LBGT culture and the how the government and society looked at it and it was like, you know what? Fuck you guys. Look at this. Right. Even when he, he his brother goes, um, he said he, when he showed me this one in the black book. Right. It was, he says, um, uh, you think dad's going to like this one? You know, and it was like probably one of the most stark images in there. Uh, was that I mean, do you feel that that was kind of like, you know, an underlying goal of, of some of his work was to kind of really just put it, put the culture in, in people's faces? Yeah. And I think he wanted to Literally. to shock. Yes. I think. <laughs> I think he wanted to shock to use shock as a way to get people to open their eyes and open their minds and open their hearts. So like a way to make people look at the pictures actually, you know? Um, but I think he wasn't, it wasn't like gratuitous because I think if you, after you've seen about a hundred or a thousand of his pictures, you begin to realize that it's not necessarily, as he said, it's not what they're, of. It's not the penis. It's not the dildo. It's not. Or the it's, pinky it's, in the penis. Or the pinky in the penis. Yeah. It's the, it's, it's the composition, disturbing. you know, <laughs> I know that's, that's the one. That is the one. That is the one. The it was that one. And it was the, the guy with the enema straw. out of. Oh yeah. That, yeah, Joe. That, that one. Yeah. Joe. yeah. Uh, let's call him. Yes. Joe. Joe. <laughs> uh, sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. I just, no, uh, no, no. I mean, but that, I think it was a device to get people to pay attention. No, definitely. Uh, and uh, I mean, you touched on something really interesting, which you don't hear too often is that he wanted the story to be told. Yeah, I think an artist has a responsibility to their audience. I mean, what artist really creates work only for them? You know, an artist is creating stuff for other people to look at, enjoy, admire, feedback on. So your responsibility as an artist is to your audience, to secure your audience, find your audience, reach your audience, engage your audience. And he took that very seriously. That was as much a part of the work as, as shooting the pictures was. And I, I think people sometimes like criticize that and say, Oh, he was ambitious and he was a hustler, but really it's a part of what the artist's job is. And and to pretend otherwise is just hypocritical. Right. You know, artists pretend they don't want to be famous. I'm sorry. They're, they're lying. It's, it's a lie. It's, it's probably one of the biggest ego like communities ever. Like, I mean, I've Hello, spent time at Art Basel. I'm like, wow. wow. Like, it, like you can feel ego like in in, in Miami during yeah. that time. Yeah. Um, no. And, and it's right. That's what an artist. Should, you know, an artist should be connected to their audience and have an audience. That's the whole point of it, right? When when did he? You know, and when does it, maybe any artist, but specifically for Maplethorpe, like when did he realize like what he had was special? At the beginning, before he'd made anything. Like as a kid, he's like, I want to be an artist. 
And he says, I didn't even know what that meant. But it's like he knew he was special before he'd even created anything. And, I, you know, one of the notes I had, too, is that, I mean, he appeared like, I mean, a lot of the storytelling talks about him not like, you know, not so much a participant or and a voyeur as much as an observer. Right. Like one of the guys described their, you know, intimate encounters as vanilla. Right. <laughs> so. Um, uh, so but when you when you think about that, right, it's because um, I, I think about the Showtime documentary of, with Michael Jackson and you see him at uh, Studio 54 and he's just really looking at the room. Right. He's just uh, he's not dancing, he's not drinking. He's just kind of like really observing the culture. And then he t- he tells it through his music and his energy and his creative output. Yeah, I think that I think that Maplethorpe was a little more immersive than Michael Jackson in that like I feel like he really I mean he he often did, you know, go into the mine shaft and walk out with a trick and 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 you know, fool around with the trick and then take a photo. Right. So I Very think true. I think that 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 he there was a he was document he called himself he basically called himself a documentarian. He, t- he talked about how, you know, documenting his life was as important as, as the work itself. His life was the work, the work of art. And he was a curious guy who sort of like went on this journey that included, you know, S and M and then his obsession with black men. And he, you know, he, experienced it in real ways and photographed it in real ways. Got Um, it. (laughs) That's kind of, I mean, that's partially for me, part, part of what makes it so intense because you know, and you know, in some cases, in some cases he didn't, it's not like he slept with all the people he photographed, but most, I'm not sure. A lot. A lot. Okay. But but not but not in all cases because then he became known as the guy. Oh, well, he, not the you know, celebrity he was, portraits. He, not right? the celebrity portraits. <laughs> and also he became known as the guy, uh, you know, he would get a phone call, you know, um the guy, I'm the guy who likes to, you know, I, you know, eat poo or something like that. <laughs> And, but, but he's, but you know, and like most of us have some sort of duality, right? You know, he's also the guy mm-hmm. who's taking pictures of flowers, right? Yes. And, and there's a softer side mm-hmm. to his work. And did you guys explore that much or, or, or what did you learn from his softer side? A little creativity? bit, a little bit. Like, I mean, we, the, the film does give more space to the explicit photos because he said himself that they were the most important pictures he took. And I think they have then a sort of shadow effect on the flowers. Suddenly you're looking at a flower knowing that the guy who took a fisting picture, you know, there's a pistol and a stamen and there's a fist up someone's ass and right. they have a sort of resonance, you know. Yeah. Together. It's like quantum thing. So you're not necessarily looking at... uh so the flowers, yeah. The flowers, the, the, I mean, he, I think the flowers are a really important part of his portfolio, be, and 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 partially juxt, in juxtaposition because there's the sexual, the obvious sexuality thing, but also because he was obsessed with beauty, mm-hmm. and so for him, some of the sex acts that he photographed, many of them, it would be hard for anyone to think that they're beautiful, but they are all kind of beautiful in that 
He was, he wanted them perfect. You know, the composition's perfect. The, he found, he turned these things into beautiful pieces of art. And I think the flowers, the statues, the portraits, I think there's a continuity with the way he treated all of his I was going to say he wanted to draw a parallel to say that this is, this too is beautiful, as yes. beautiful as a flower. Yes. Right. And, 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 and what are flowers other than the sex organs of plants? There's a there's a, yep. a a very smart guy I know who's, who says. What? What is that? <laughs> it's true. For? It's true. Right. What does that look for? No, but 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 I guess my point is like like in addition to the fact that the flowers couldn't have existed without the the explicit work, it it goes both ways. Yeah. It's like you needed all of this to help legitimize, you know, you know, you needed all the flowers and the statues to help legitimize the explicit stuff. It's, it's the totality of the work. Right. And, and in our film, we do focus more on the explicit because of how he speaks about it, but we certainly have a lot of the flowers. We have a lot of the other work because you do have, to, we have, we have almost 500 photos in the film. We also, you have to, you have to show that duality. Uh, otherwise, like kind of, kind of to your point is like, you're saying like, Oh, this is the porn- pornographic, you know, artist, mm-hmm. right. Um, or for, uh, photographer, you wouldn't even, you wouldn't mm-hmm. even say artist in that context. If you did not see like, Oh wow, he's genuinely talented outside of my, you know, uh, realm of reference if you will mm-hmm. um and also think there's like i mean even the people that he's that he shot I, I think there's you know i always feel like fashion is like one of the most individualistic forms of expression like if you buy a car like you know a ton of other people have the same car if you buy your iphone a ton of other people have, but the way you can put an outfit together is you know you can own that and it's and it's accessible right um and i think even when you look at the variety of sex acts that are out there and there's it is some kind of individual expression. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've watched a, a lot of documentaries on sex stuff, but, <laughs> but no, there, I mean, you, you, you see this, um, this idea that the, in, like you hear about the act, right. And then you, you see the individual and the two almost in most cases don't match up, right. Mm-hmm. It's like, Oh, that's a regular guy or that's a regular woman. Like, why would they do that sort of thing? And so there's this individual expression that becomes okay mm-hmm. through the lens of a Maplethorpe. Mm-hmm. Boom, drop the mic. Yes, got it. <laughs> um, um, so, I mean, with that, like, how did you guys come to, uh, I guess, an agreement internally? I mean, emotionally internally as as far as, you know, doing away with the, the, the your position of like, oh, is it, is, do I feel comfortable going this route or do I not feel comfortable? What was the outcome after the project said and done? And like, now how do you feel about having done the project? Um, I, I feel like he's a pretty brilliant artist and I think it's the sort of the, the brutal honesty in terms of how he led his life and how he made his art. That is his genius. And so it's the very things, the very things that made me sort of, um, gave me pause are the very things that I think make him genius. That's great. Agree. <laughs> you could cop out. No, uh, you could have said it better, but we would be here. All, but we would be here all day. The uh, the documentary <laughs> filmmaking process, right? And, and and we won't go too lengthy here. But um, I think you set out to tell a, a particular story, 
And along the way, you start to discover other things. And I think, you know, when you parallel that to any sort of creative person's journey or business person's journey, you're like, oh, I'm going to do this. And then like the world starts to open up. You're like, oh, well, maybe we should do X. Like, how do you filter, you know, toward that end project? Does it all happen to shoot everything and then cut it together? Like, what is what is that process like? Well, you know, we started out and we had a, a treatment. And I remember it was called Portrait of the Artist as dot, dot, dot. Because we couldn't quite figure out what came after the dot, dot, dot. And we thought it was like, was he a nice person? Was he not a nice person? Was he an angel or a devil? And yet, I suppose in a way, on the journey, we found that he kind of transcended that. And he himself was fascinated with any kind of duality, you know, not just light and dark, good and evil, life and death. He was fascinated with all that. But as an artist, he was also this collaborator, you know, singular artist, Robert Maplethorpe, but he collaborated with so many people, you know, Edward Maplethorpe, his brother, or Bob Colicello, who was the editor of Interview, or his models. I mean, he, he said that his work was this kind of collaboration. And this fascination with duality was really interesting to us because he would have one exhibition uptown of the celebrity portraits and then he'd have the sex pictures downtown. He never put them together until he knew he was dying and he planned this final show, The Perfect Moment, where he put it all together. He put the sex pictures, the black pictures, the flowers together in one case. And he was sort of building a time bomb. He knew what he was doing by putting these things that had been separate together. He knew he was going to cause a big fuss. And it happened after he died. But where am I going with this? No, I, just, uh, I, I, went, I think the question like, was about process. Yes, but the process was there was. Well, you right, but this it, was like, you discovery. started to discover all these things yeah. along the way, and, but it also it's funny because it kind of just parallels with the path of his journey, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. um, but um, the, but what that translates into is just a lot of time because you just end up spending a lot more time making it than you had planned because it's like, Oh wait, you know, things are changing and you're just shooting more and more stuff and reading more and more stuff. And, and so, so even though there are aspects of this film where it came together quite quickly towards the beginning, the actual making of it took another like almost two years because the, the just, this process and journey journey of discovery, even before we shot while we were shooting and editing just right. took longer than, than you really who, who want to Who are you spend. responsible to? Because it, you know, when you have a lot of stakeholders, right? You have the family, you have the friends, you have the community, if you will, you have filmmaking, you have yourselves. Like at the end of the day, like who, who do you go like, okay, it's, this is yourself. yourself. You had to put all that out of your mind and just, focus on telling the story the way you think it should be told and, and the way you think the story is telling you to tell it. You know, you have to ignore all the, the community issues and the this and that. And then not everyone, I mean, by and large, people are thrilled with the film, but not everybody loves it. And but, that's inevitable. I mean, it's, it's an imperfect work, you know, because only if he had made it himself. Right. But it's pretty, it's almost perfect. (laughs) Um, And I think that's a really good question, by the way, because this film more than, than there are many, (laughs) many questions that have been brilliant, but that one's really good because this question really, there were so many considerations. I mean, there was like on the surface, there were so many considerations. There was the community, there was like, like it was a really challenging film and we just had to edit out all of that noise like more than I think any project we've ever worked on, because I think otherwise we would have been like, 
we paralyzed by fear of offending this one or that one or this organization or, you know, HBO. And that, I think that's why the film is so good in a way. And that's why when we delivered the, you know, delivered the cut, it was like. No notes. Kind of. <laughs> we thought there'd be like, let's lose a few penises. Right. But no. All we, we, that. We actually, keep the penis. Keep uh, the penis. We put a few, <laughs> we put a few extra in just in case. <laughs> nice. It's just a penis extras. Was there like a line of credits? Um, so as we wind down, um, uh, I mean, how are you so guys soon. doing on time? I got, no, I mean, I, I got to, I got to get out of here. <laughs> HBO to go, right? Right. HBO go. And, um, no, <laughs> You just get up and walk, walk out. Um, the show's called Innovation Crush, right? Innovation We're Crush. talking about everything from YouTube and what was YouTube before there was YouTube to your process to, you know, I, I also wanted to ask you guys a little bit about your, your business journey. But, um, oh, oh, okay. Uh, can I do it? Do you, I mean, do you have time? That's what I want to know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. You, that was, you got me with the joke. Um, Unfortunately, Randy's driving, so I'm, I'm his person. <laughs> so if he leaves. <laughs> nice. Um, show business. You've been doing it for a very long time um, there. I mean, you've done a great job at the show and obviously with the business, what were some of the, you know, the biggest things, the biggest hurdles for you guys as business people and business owners, you know, throughout this journey, right? Whether it's pivoting or finding new areas of storytelling or just how do we fund ourselves in between, <laughs> in between projects and, and things like that? You know, maybe it's like so many people, you get the impression they have a plan, and I, we've had plans, but they never seem to work out the way you think they're going to. So it feels often as if what happens is accidental, I suppose. Or serendipitous. And serendipitous. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Not paranoia, but pronoia. <laughs> the universe is working to help you. And I do, I do think that, um, that, you know, we, when we started the business, we rented, we needed an office. So we rented a loft that we couldn't really afford and we were living in it as well. And so the simple fact was when that show came to an end, we needed another show to pay the rent to stay in the loft. And, you know, necessity was the mother of invention to some degree. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think whenever things get bad, because we, we always, we still, to this day, we're constantly like, oh my God, what's the next thing we got? You know, you got to sort of feed it to feed the machine. And, um, but for me personally, I just like, I'm a really good spinner. So like I can just spin if I start to get a little dark, right? I can totally Fenton, Fenton will go half empty. Oh. I'm always, I'm like almost always full. <laughs> it's like, always empty. My back pocket is always empty. I think to succeed in Hollywood, you need to be delusional. <laughs> well, and I think that Randy I takes am. that box. That's, that's, <laughs> you know, you just have to convince yourself cause you, cause it's hard. To, it's like, it's so, it's like a, it, it's such an awful business. Really? <laughs> it really is. I walk, I call it relentless optimism. Right, yes. like Randy is relentlessly optimistic. Yeah, it's like no matter what you're like, I, you know, I, uh, I manage a team and I'm like the same way. It's like, oh, the client doesn't want to do X. I'm like, hmm, well, what if we did it this way? And then that doesn't work. What about it? Like, I, like I will not kill an idea until it is like 
out of blood and just skeletons on, you know, mm-hmm. that was a terrible metaphor. Sorry. <laughs> I tried, but, <laughs> but no, it is, a, but that, but there's also like, I think that can create some delusion as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And I think you need that, the balance of what you bring to the table, Fenton, which is like glue, <laughs> exactly. Misery. It's right. like that film inside out, right? I'm not sort of that blue head person. Yes. that's always weeping uh-huh. with the cloud over my head. Uh, so back to the question I was going to ask, um, uh, with the show being called innovation crush, what is your, 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 uh, current innovation crush? What are you crushing on that you see out? I'm crushing on this show. I love that title innovation crush. Thank you. It's it's, it's like a quadruple entendre. What color is innovation crush? It like is it was orange, orange and black. See, uh, yeah. orange, mm-hmm. and black. orange. I'm pointing at my custom headphones. Thank mm-hmm. you, V Motor, for my custom headphones. <laughs> orange is the the world of wonder colors. Are orange, yeah, well, is orange, and I'm black. And this is a new relationship. Yeah. So orange, orange and black. Is new orange is black. black. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so aside from the show, like, uh, is there anything out in the world, whether it's technology, uh, uh, culinary art, I don't know, a school you've heard of, something that you think is like, oh, wow, that is the future. Or that is a, an amazing development in our world. You're delivered oh. just fine. Trust me. There's always mm. like a, in, when I look at the sound waves of the show, it's like, it's always like a, a it's quiet right here. Really? Wait, the next so, one is even harder though. Just so you know, the future is now. So it, that, there is so much stuff coming at you all at once. And it's, I think people complain about information overload, but I think it's kind of a good thing. Um, but a specific crush, specific crush. I might, I might let you off. You, uh, you guys might be the first people I ever let off the hook. No, <laughs> I, I want to nail it, right? Because uh-huh, I'm, I'm thinking. Your wheels are turning. Yeah, and like I'm in the kitchen. <laughs> I'm like going through the house um, in my car. Is it your Nutribullet? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's not the Nutribullet. No, it's not. I love it, but. I tried that. Soylent product, you know that idea. Oh, did you? That I do not have a crush on. Yeah, no, it was wait disgusting. Is is that the new the new protein rage that everyone? Yeah, yeah, it's like eating is the new. What's it called? It's called Soylent. It's it's like a powder. Just powder is like an astronaut drink. It's 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 absolutely disgusting. I'd sooner drink wheat paste or. Well, you know, somebody tried to introduce me to one of the guys that started Soylent like a long time ago, and I was like, that sounds like an awful idea. But it was one of those things where it's like this person was a coder and sat for hours in front of a computer and really just, and it's like I, like I'm not interested in the eating experience but I want to I want to be able to fuel myself to do what I love most and so like oh, cooking became a disruption <laughs> and you go like so what if I just had a powder that I could ingest um but I mean food hacking in its in and of itself is a really you know amazing area where people are like finding our gastronomic chefs and like finding new ways to like reinvent the food and the eating experiences so um I'll answer that one for you guys how about that thank you your food thank hacking you. is your innovation crush oh. Oh. <laughs> how how did we discover that <laughs> Um, and last but not least, this is the hard, the really hard question. It might be, so easy. I don't know. Like I, I thought that was the last one was a layup. I thought, especially cause you guys, you guys, <laughs> what's your innovation? Um, oh, uh, food. At, no, um, uh, that is a good question. 
<laughs> I never have to think about it. I will say I'm kind of obsessed with you know the uh, the implications of biometric technology, like wearables and how they measure your heart rates and so on and so forth. And in your world, um, for the movie The Revenant, there's a company called Lightwave who worked with the filmmakers, and they put these wristbands on individuals during a screening. And they were able to measure like the tension in their body, their heart rates, their, you know, their movement, whether they laughed or didn't Mm -hmm. laugh or body temperature. And so you think about how to make the next, you know, film and or market that film, you know, which ones are going to be the the most emotionally impactful pieces to show. Because you can look at the arc over the, I don't know how long the movie was, but over that amount of time and find out like collectively where the, the, you know, points of impact were. Hmm. So, um, that, 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 that one came to mind for me. You know, I'm just realizing there's an innovation crush that I'm about to have, but <sighs> I'm not, I'm not, I don't have the information to share. So it's even worse than not having an answer <laughs> <laughs> well, because it, Rude told me a- about, about this machine that he's obsessed with that you have to, there's a place on Wilshire on the West side where the old CW building used to be. Hmm. When you go there and they wrap your legs and your, your lower legs, your upper legs and your butt. Mm. And it basically does this kind of vibration Mm. and you do it for like an hour and it's like exercising your heart. Mm. And he's done like five sessions of it. He's addicted to it. And is, and, and it's so weird. We're having this conversation because this morning I thought, Oh, he sent me a link and I was, I meant to do the research and I would have, Remember the name, but I don't. That's close enough. Name, so People can Google uh, RuPaul and leg wrapping. So it's a heart massage, though, right? <laughs> it's it, yeah. It's, it's that it's, way to exercise when you don't feel like exercising. Yes, and it, it, in, in particular, it's all about blood circulation and and getting your heart, getting blood to places that that blood just doesn't want to go on its own. I don't know. Yeah, blood blood is so stubborn. Yeah, that's stubborn blood. <laughs> um, okay, last but not least, uh, who wants to go first? I'm going to take a volunteer and then... Okay, then I'll go first. Yes. Uh, complete this phrase for me. Mm-mm. Innovation to me is... New things. <laughs> <laughs> so quick. That's <laughs> so bad, though. Innovation. You had that one in the back pocket. Innovation is new things. <laughs> Randy... You, you know, know innovation, innovation is also overrated. Like, what's wrong with the old things? I mean, because I, when you were saying that, I was thinking about, I've suddenly gotten back into books. I am sick of waking up in the middle of the night and checking my iPhone for yeah. emails. It's it's sickness. And reading a book which requires you to turn on a light and hold pages and do that old-fashioned thing is actually really nice. Yeah. You mm. know? Well, there's, Just it out no, there's, 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 there's lines of thinking around the idea of touch and how we lose, we're losing our sense of tactile, mm. you know, connection with things because you're tapping glass all day, as opposed to like actually picking up and feeling what the texture of a book is like, or, yeah. you know, the embossing of a cover and all these different things. So, um, there is, you, you're right. There is sort of a resurgence to, you know, more tactile physical experiences because like you can't stare at a screen at all hours of the day. And, and you know, so much of our lives are virtual and digital it's the screen age okay we're living in the screen age but but that's why you know drag con was so excited drag con's coming up in a couple of weeks and that's it's like people I'll be really there. Lo- yeah, be there. 
It, people really love like having that tactile experience yeah. of, of being there in person, right? Well, you say that inner innovation oh. is overrated, and I say that innovation is survival. So, Fenton, be careful. I love the fact that you guys are like polar opposites, damn near. Um, but no, continue. What? What? That's do you it. Do? That's all. It's survival in what way, though? Like what? Like innovate or die. Mm. Oh, thanks, pal. <laughs> so, you know. Or pick up a book. It's one or, yeah. the, one or the other. I read books too, but. So, so um, as we close, how can people find more Worlds of Wonders? Worldofwonder.net, which is the WOW report edited by James St. James. And WOW presents on YouTube. What's a, what's a WOW report? It's a blog. Ah, mm-hmm. it's a pop culture blog. My research team wasn't they bit yeah. of a gap, huh? You're so busy <laughs> googling to the pop tarts this morning. You forgot to log on. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Late breaking gossip on Hollywood gossip at the Wow Report. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you both for uh, joining us today. And this has been uh, I had a blast. I had fun. Just like you. Uh, really? Yeah. No. Really? <laughs> I, Does my I, face yeah. not show my uh, enthusiasm? No, I just thought we overstayed our welcome. No, I, uh, I, you know, I, don't I know. thought we had 45 minutes. So I said, oh, oh, shit, I have to close. I mean, we didn't bring any food. We didn't do nothing. There's water. There's, I mean, there's we water should have brought like a coffee cake, you know, for the table or something like that. Well, you you know? should have taken me in a limousine and yeah. like driven me around town. <laughs> um, but thank you for joining us, everyone. This has been another installment of Innovation Crush, and we will talk to you next time.